welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And if you're interested in some insider perks, you can pitch in a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. That's patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Today, Today, I'm speaking to someone really interesting. I'm speaking to Bill Nussie. He's the CEO of the Freeing Energy Project, CEO of Solar Inventions, which we'll be talking about. And he has a new book coming out called Freeing Energy. On December 7th, you'll be able to buy it. You can pre-order it now. But welcome, Bill. Thank you, Michael. I'm really excited to be here. And this is actually kind of interesting, Bill, because you know, let, let's talk a bit about how you ended up in this position, because you know, at one point we both worked for the same global tech company doing something completely different than what we do now. <laughs> yeah. So, so how did Bill Nussie turn into, you know, CEO of three things, book author in the distributed energy space, et cetera? Well, like most people's story, it's probably long and convoluted. So let me give you the short version of it. You know, it starts with the fact I was an energy, I was a nerd as a kid and couldn't hit a ball with, hit the wall with a ball. So I started getting into tech really early discovered I couldn't hold down a normal job. So I started creating companies. And my first company back in the eighties did software for early microcomputers doing graphics, which was hard to do at the time. And then I started another company in college, which was creating applications for the first ever local area networks, desktop email and fun things like that back in the very beginning. And I spent a little bit of time at a big consulting firm, actually helping one of the baby bells transition through the uh, um, telecommunications act. And so there's this sort of theme emerging in my career, and I'm getting interested in every time there's a really big change happening, new technologies are disrupting an industry. I'm kind of drawn to it like a moth to light. Then I, I, I uh, helped build this company as CEO called IXL, which basically brought the internet to the Fortune 500 for the first time. We put up the first websites for General Electric and uh, Home Depot and a couple other, or many other big companies. And then the company I sold... Uh, most recently to IBM was actually at the forefront of digital marketing. And so we watched this transition of the old school marketing into the new world of digital marketing. And we played a small role in that and helped IBM push that forward, which is where you and I ended up at IBM together. Yeah. Well, uh, together is a relative term. Uh, For those who aren't aware, it's 500,000 people uh, (laughs) spread around the world in 140 countries or something like that. A a lot fewer people now that they've divested the uh, technology services arm into something called Kindrel, which sounds like an alien space invasion of things that whales eat. (laughs) But, you know, so Bill and I being at the same company is not, is like saying, oh, you're from America. Do you know Fred? Uh, I, I was going to ask you about this guy I met in Canada once. I'm glad I didn't. It would have uh, been on the nose. It does remind me of the time I was talking to a, uh, an IBMer from Texas who was having deep problems with the un- with understanding that not only was Canada bigger than Texas, it was bigger than the United States. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh. But you left IBM, you left IBM you know a couple of years ago. Your, your golden handshakes, your golden pair handcuffs ran out, and you you know got out. And you left Armonk, 
and you know you've been doing other stuff since. So, so why don't you talk about the pivot you made after that? I had this really cool job at IBM, and uh, it was to help the 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 leaders of the company set their long term strategy. And it was we had a team of people that looked out at all the different industries, and so that was where I first discovered clean energy. And the first attraction to it was that this was a largely undigitized industry and boy, wasn't that a great fit for IBM. But as I looked behind the curtain, so to speak, the much more interesting story to Bill Nussie emerged, which was that solar was about to become less expensive than any other way to generate electricity. Such, uh, as such, there was a big disruption going to happen. And that's what really set me down the path of switching uh, away from a decades of software tech and moving into an industry where no one knew me and I didn't know anything about it. And, but I had to be in it. It was huge. It, it, it checked so many boxes for me personally, from a career and personal point of view. And we can talk more about that throughout the, the conversation today, but really the, the catalyst was a friend calling me saying, you know, I figured out what you need to do with this whole clean energy thing you're so excited about. Okay, tell me. And he said, you need to quit IBM and write a book. And, you know, for about a half a second, I thought it was really dumb, but then it dawned on me. And it maybe was one of the, the most galvanizing ideas of my life. And for the next day, 24 hours, I was feverish with excitement. And, and I actually resigned 36 hours after he gave me that idea. I, I spent three months winding out. But writing the book proved to be the, this giant step to learn the industry and meet phenomenal, smart people all over the planet. Uh, and uh, that's really what set, changed the course of my career. Yeah, I have to admit that you know, I've been writing about clean technology and uh, the transition to a low-carbon economy for at least a decade. But you know, getting on podcasts, talking to people like you has been a really interesting way to expand the level of engagement I get. It's, it's been really great. So I, I totally understand why, you know, a book and the, the interviews and how many interviews was it you did for that book, by the way? I, I lost count at around 320, <laughs> but literally I have notes from 360 or 70 different people that I've spoken with, including a few with you and tons and tons and tons of your articles before you and I had the chance to meet. So I've just amassed all these ideas and perspectives from so many people all over the world. Uh, and it started to come together uh, in the last couple of years, which resulted in the, the book. Well, it's an interesting question because, you know, people ask me, what, Mike, why haven't you written a book yet? Why haven't you published a book? Good and question. I, and typically I say, well, I keep publishing reports on stuff I'm interested in through Clean Technica, and I don't have as many challenges with the editorial process. But <laughs> Clean Technica reports don't get nearly as much press and PR as books. So, you know, talk to your, uh, maybe if your, if your publisher likes you after, after December 7th, <laughs> put them in touch with me. You know, but, but in all seriousness, man, I, I would, uh, among my friends and family, they, I've written another book in the past about uh, the rise of digital marketing. And we all together collectively declared Bill will never write another book. <laughs> and you can imagine the uh, distress when I said, you know, I think I'm going to write a book. And, but of course, it'll only take a year to write it. It's been four, <laughs> by, four by the way. There is no ROI in books. This is a 100% labor of love. There's no money in this. Uh, this is only because there's such an important set of ideas that I believe the world are, is missing 
and I just feel compelled to get it out there. But I'm looking forward to 2022 of, of not being an author and getting back in the business of building businesses. Yep. We can talk about that too. Absolutely. So, you know, important message. So how would you summarize? What are the top three important messages of the book? And then we can kind of drill into each one as we go. The primary punchline of the book is that small-scale energy systems are have been set aside. I call them the the kids Thanksgiving table, they just haven't gotten the attention. They've been an afterthought and an annoyance in some ways for the folks that think about big policy and big grids and utilities, et cetera. And that's going to change. And uh, we can talk a lot about it, but there's been patterns in business history. And I've been around long enough and I've been a student of it for, uh, for most of my career that paint a very clear picture that these small scale systems are going to move from being on the side and largely irrelevant to this, the transition to clean energy to being front and center. They, they won't re- by in any way remove the need for and the growth in the big grid, but they're going to play a much more predominant role. And that's the main outcome of the book. And then uh, following that along, and really for the one of the main audiences of the book is that because these systems are largely less regulated, these small systems, and because when you put rooftop on your house or you build a community solar project in your neighborhood or your town, there's actual real competition happening. And and competition drives innovation and innovation drives risks and investments. And so we're about to see as a result of the rise of small scale energy systems, we're going to see a tsunami of innovation that we haven't seen in the grid business for a hundred years. It's really I think sometimes that Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla would look at our current industry and say, you know, this is this isn't the, the kind of industry we invented. We want we, we were innovative. We were make, taking risks. We were doing new big ideas. And I think once again in the next decade, uh, we're going to enter a phase like that. And if they were here, maybe they would feel more at home with the industry we're becoming. Well, let's talk a bit about the, what the boundaries of these smaller scale systems are, because. You know, people might think about the roof of their house, but that's not where you're stopping. So when you say, what, what is the boundary of you know, the, the small scale systems or microgrids you're considering? I think that the size is a question that people jump to and it's important, but I will start answering the question by saying the main thing about what I call local energy is who owns it. And that's the tectonic shift. That's the disruption. You go from a world that uh, the assets are owned exclusively by giant corporations and governments, which is a fine way to build an industry, by the way. It's not, I don't mean to be critical of it, but that is no longer the exclusive domain. Energy is no longer the exclusive domain of these large companies. So we're going to start to see energy systems, particularly small-scale ones, owned by a massive and diverse set of people, including and starting with the rooftop uh, on the homes of people uh, who live in them. But to your point, it goes much larger than that. And it goes much smaller than that. You know, on one on the small end, you've got hundreds of millions of small solar lanterns that are making a profound difference for the lives of people in Africa, Latin America, and in India. You go higher in the other direction and you go to commercial and, and industrial scale systems that bring the same benefits that rooftop solar does to homeowners to building owners and, and companies that work in those buildings. Uh, then the other area that I also put under the local energy umbrella is community solar. You have a, a even larger project typically that sits near the people who are using it most often, 
and you get economies of scale, some benefits, but it, it also removes some of the benefits of local energy, like local reliability and resilience and things like that. But it still expands the perspective on is sets, aside, sets itself different from the utility scale stuff. Well, let's test out some of the ideas here because there's various ways that it's encapsulated. Is it like on a local grid that's, you know, so that everybody that shares it is behind the meter and or the generation is behind the meter. Is that one of the differentiators you make or? That's a, that is, if you are behind the meter, then by definition, Bill Nussie's definition, you are local energy. I think there are some exceptions to that community solar being a good example that I would still call local energy, but the preponderance of local energy uh, is going to be uh, behind the meter at various scales. And, and to give people a sense for this, one of the areas I've been poking at recently is electrify, um, you know, changing the fuels of aviation. Um, you know, I recommend people go and read that separately. Bill and I aren't going to talk about it. But in reading a NASA report on regional air mobility, what, what I consider to be the primary one, one of the points the NASA author made and his team made was 146 of the 5,000 small airports in the United States today are already building significant solar behind the meter. Another contact in the Netherlands has got a 20 megawatt solar, they have a 20 megawatt solar farm on the air, on the airport's property with the expectation of using it to power electrifying transportation and aviation behind the meter. So it's a really different shift and the tax structures and the rate structures and a bunch of other stuff start to really change as we move this around. Um, I think behind the meter is is such a key point because for the most part in most jurisdictions, the government and the regulatory policies don't have a lot to say outside of being safe on what you do behind the meter. And in Europe, particularly with their energy communities, they're really leaning into this notion. And once you get behind the meter, you have all these benefits for innovation. You know, you 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 isolate yourself from the big grid. And so if there is an issue, which there typically wouldn't be, but if there is, it's your own problem. But you can, it, it just like buying a new computer from a new manufacturer, if it doesn't work as well as you wanted, you can, you know, you're not going to take the internet down. You're just going to have to replace your computer. And so I, I love your example of the airports, Michael, because I hadn't heard of that before. And that's just one of the many new places we're going to see local energy spring up and we're going to see all kinds of new business models because they're airports, electrification of fuel, creating hydrogen as an example, maybe, who knows, but, but, or charging electric cars or trucks. Maybe this is a place where trucking fleets go to get charged and airports have a tremendous amount of land, a lot of which it can safely put solar. So there's so many one plus one equals five outcomes. When you start to think about local energy, when you start to break away from the the thinking that is exclusively about the big grid. I'm going to add this one. I want to learn more about what's going on in airports because this sounds like a whole new exciting area. Yeah, I, I was certainly fascinated by that as I poked at some of those things and you know, people had been reaching out to me based on what I've been publishing recently. The, um, the other thing you know, to touch on you know, is finding the boundaries of the domain. Storage, local storage behind the meter. I assume that absolutely it. is a very large part of the local energy story and it's a critical part because uh, of its role in creating resiliency and allowing what people are calling prosumers, folks who generate and consume electricity, it allows them to make more money in the electricity, the excess electricity they want to sell back because they can sell it at different times when it might be worth more, or they can add additional services like frequency regulation. So storage is another one of those 
local energy, well, actually for big grid too, but it's, it's particularly for local energy, the one plus one equals five. There's a great report from RMI, previously Rocky Mountain Institute, that talks about all the places on the grid where storage make a difference. And they conclude that storage behind the meter is the single most valuable place to put storage when you are thinking about where and how uh, and what levels to put storage into the uh, power industry's grids. That's a, a interesting question. We'll, we'll touch on vehicle to grid and vehicle to home a little bit later. But, you know, so that's the domain. We're talking about behind the meter. We're talking about generation of electricity that is shared among everybody behind the meter. We're talking about storage behind the meter and the innovation and business models and opportunities that are growing there. The a- airport example is just one of many where there's a lot of room for entrepreneurs to grow. And that's kind of your point. You're, uh, as we talked about this you know, in the run-up to this, and by the way, I got a late version of this book to you know, provide some comments back to Bill because I'm not a small energy guy. <laughs> uh, anybody who follows me know that, hmm, I'm interested in the scale of a country or bigger. <laughs> well, that's why, I, that's why I reached out to you. And I was so grateful uh, that you took time to go through the book. And I don't think anyone has given me more thoughtful feedback, honestly and sincerely, than you did, Michael. It was, it was a great gift to spend your cycles and your huge brain power on it. I don't think I convinced you that uh, local energy is going to be quite as large as I believe it will be, but this is why it's such a great conversation today and, and the ones we'll have going forward. Well, it's like, it's, it's, I disagree with Mark Z. Jacobson on this too, and he's more on your side. And so, you know, his big brain and his two PhDs, when I, I tell people, Mark and I disagree on this, and look at his credentials. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fact that I disagree with him doesn't mean I'm right. <laughs> Which, um, and both of your credentials dwarf mine, but I do have the advantage of coming from the outside in and, and having been through a lot of disruptive uh, outside in business cycles. So that's hopefully my value add to this discussion. Well, you know, uh, you talked about boundaries, Michael. There's one other thing I feel okay. absolutely com- compelled to mention when you think about the box of local energy. One of my first interviews was with uh, Amory Levins, the Rocky Mountain Institute. And I took him through some of the same thesis and answered some of the same questions you've asked. And after about half an hour, he looked at me and kind of shook his head. He said, you're missing something very important. And I said, okay. And he said, you know, there's a kind of uh, energy that's, that uh, is the cheapest form of all, the absolutely cleanest type of energy available. And uh, you should mention that in your book. And I said, what is that? And he, he said, megawatts. And uh, that's his term that he's popularized for energy efficiency. And for anybody, for most people that follow RMI's roots and Amory Levin's uh, phenomenal vision over the years is energy efficiency is an essential and central part of that vision. So there's a big section in the book on uh, megawatts is a nod to Amory. And when you include efficiency, particularly controlled and timed efficiency, you bring a whole new level of uh, uh, gymnastics and opportunity to excel and, and make local energy more profitable and more flexible, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an important part that I think does fit in the boundary you were asking about. Oh, and uh, I agree completely. And I, I would put district, uh, district heating in there as well. There's all sorts yes. of mechanisms for sharing heat, not electricity, which are strongly advantageous. So We don't do um, that in the South here where I live. I think they do that more in Canada <laughs> and okay. in Europe. Not a lot of heat sharing. We, we can, heat's not our problem down here in the South. I, I'd heard that. <laughs> <laughs> 
This episode of Clean Tech Talk is sponsored by Flow, the maker of the Flow Home X5. The Flow Home X5 is an industry-leading home EV charging solution that features a stylish and durable aluminum casing and allows you to schedule, monitor, and optimize your charging via the Flow mobile app. Flow offers 24-7 customer support to help with installation and troubleshooting. To learn more about the Flow Home, please visit store.flow.com. That's store.flo.com. So, but, but let's turn the tables. I mean, because this is not, I mean, you and I discussed this at length, and, you know, this is a U.S.-centric book in the sense that it is in the context of, the way I paraphrase it, in the context of a lot of the things you look at, they work really well in the wide open spaces and low population density of the United States and don't work as well in places that are denser. But that's a, it's a differentiation there. And so I, you know, I, I, I posit that you, you, your book is best read by entrepreneurs in the United States and secondarily in countries like Canada and Australia, which have a lot of space. But I think you might disagree. However, what I'm interested in is you spent a lot of time in Africa and other parts of the world as well. So maybe you can talk about your time outside of the United States, because I think that's a really interesting part of the story. Thank you. You know, for me, it was eye-opening on many levels, uh, but the big surprise that I took away from my travels was this notion of solar and batteries as Lego bricks. And, you know, I have on my shelf behind me here, I've got a whole bunch of uh, solar lanterns that are typically purchased in Africa, one of which is made by a company called D-Light, which is the leader in that space. And it has a battery cell and it has a small solar cell. What's remarkable to me is the technology of that solar cell and that battery, if not actually that solar cell and that battery, is identical to the same system that would power a home. You just have more batteries and more solar cells. And it's the same components, nearly identical, and sometimes actually identical components to the uh, when you have 10 million cells and 10 million batteries that could power a city. And there's, no, there's never been anything like this in the energy industry. In order for us to have gotten a cost-effective electricity and affordable oil and gas, we've, ex- we've had to rely exclusively on economies of scale, giant machines, giant corporations, the bigger the oil well and distribution system and pipelines, and uh, the bigger the coal and nuclear power plant, the cheaper it was for all of us. Solar and batteries are the first systems that apply equally in terms of economies of scale and economy, what I call economies of volume. And, and so when I went to Africa, you know, I could see this component, which has been driven down in price thanks to utility scale uh, investments, but it's the same technology and the same kind of innovation and the same learnings at some level apply, certainly at the science and, and, and uh, chemistry levels. So when you think about how to make an impact on these other parts of the world that are, uh, have lower incomes and have a different lifestyles, the ability to apply this technology, solar and batteries to everything in different ways, admittedly, but the technology and many of the solution stacks built on top of it are identical. And that's when I got, I think, frankly, Michael, when I realized that the entire future of energy is going to be built with these Lego bricks, so to speak, I saw this, uh, the emergence of the story that's gotten me so excited about local energy. Now, uh, we, we talked a bit about, um, this is, you know, the part where I, you know, say, by the way, people, <laughs> Africa is almost as big in landmass as the rest of the world. 
um, like North America and Europe and India, I think, can all fit in it. And it has a billion people and it's 55 different countries, massively complex space. You didn't go to Africa. You went to a few countries. Uh, under, but you also went there under the guise of another organization. You, you weren't there just as a private individual in part of your time there. So maybe talk about which countries and which portions of Africa and you know the other things you did there. I've actually been to Africa many times, but the one that I chronicle most in the book is the trip I took with uh, the CEO of uh, a firm called Acumen, which is one of the most well-respected social impact funds I don't think they refer to themselves as a social impact fund. They're really a, an organization that embraces capitalism as a way to help the world's poor. And it's run by one of the most inspiring people I've ever met, Jacqueline Novogratz. And, and I was able to go with her and a small handful of people to meet with the leaders, in Africa, the leaders of African governments and to meet smallholder farmers who, whose lives have been changed by these solar systems and go to the factories where people who, who live in Africa are making and assembling these systems. It's a really important point that you make. There, there's a lot of countries in Africa, and it's a very, very diverse on every level, econ- economically, culturally. And all of my time has been in East Africa, to be clear. And, and why East Africa? Because that's the easiest place, in my assessment, and, and just empirically, for traditional Western-style uh, capitalist businesses to, to do what they do best, to unleash the innovation and entrepreneurial energies of, of people. And the governments allow for that to, to a better degree than others. And property and intellectual property and all those kind of things are easier and more familiar for those of us who have built careers in the other parts of the world, uh, Europe and the US. So East Africa is where most of the innovation and is happening in these small-scale systems and where most of the head com- where the companies doing this are headquartered. Yeah, it was interesting. I was I spent some time talking with a energy entrepreneur um, and business person in Kenya a while ago. He reached out around pumped hydro because you know they they have a lot of wind and solar on their grid, but the grid is so flaky that the transmission fails and they curtail potentially two point four gigawatt hours of electricity every day. Wow. <laughs> I know. The, 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 I mean, you and I talked about the uh, relative flakiness of the grid in the United States versus in other developed countries like in Europe and Canada as one of the differentiators that made a, a resilient microgrid model in the United States much more advantageous than it might be in Germany. There's varying economics. Like I was talking to a, a Mariko McDonough Myers, uh, who's the chief strategist of convergent energy and power while ago, and they've got facilities in Ontario behind the meter, simply because Ontario has too much inflexible electrical generation. Mm. And 55% of their electricity comes from relatively inflexible nuclear plants. And so they have an economic system with the the grid that requires, that's really advantageous for major users to put storage behind the meter, to soak it up and soak it down. And it's economically viable. It's the only market in Canada where that actually makes significant sense. But from a grid resilience perspective, you know, the United States um, with its average of four hours of outages per person per year is perplexing to, to people in Europe. When people from Europe go to Silicon Valley and the power goes out, they go, what's going on? <laughs> and, they go, and the people in Silicon Valley say, what do you mean? It's just five o'clock. <laughs> and, you know, in Kenya, however, Kenya has much better electrical management 
than the surrounding the surrounding places. It's the most developed country in that part of the world, but it has hours of outages every day. So very interesting space, lots of room for all the types of things you're talking about. So keep going about Africa, and, and there's more to say there, I'm sure. The reason that Africa really resonated with me and, and touched me was less on the big grid side, which is, as you mentioned, there's a lot of fascinating dimensions to it and a lot of opportunities there. And and by every measure and every uh, strategy, there's the need for a lot more and a lot more resilient big grid development. But our focus on this trip and, and where I chronicle it in my book is around the small scale systems. And you know, there, there was really two or three different dimensions that that all converge around the simple solar lanterns and small solar home systems that might have a television and a charger on them and a few lights. But you know, the one area that I think is important when we define local energy, and I mentioned it in a very clinical way, which is who owns it. But when you go to Africa, you see the human side of what that ownership means. You see how people's lives are transformed with the simple addition of a little bit of uh, predictable and controllable electricity. Uh, the stories, many people have heard them, but the lighting for most people is by kerosene, which is expensive and dangerous. The founder of D-Light started the company because he was doing uh, work in Africa and uh, uh, the hut that he was staying in burned down from a kerosene lamp. And that inspired him to start D-Light, which is now a multi-hundred million dollar company. And I met with people and I talk about their stories in the book a man named Francis who showed me the the kerosene uh, the black ceiling in his uh, uh, earthen hut, uh, earthen house, uh, where his children had used kerosene lamps to do their homework. And uh, just in uh, what a difference it made for health and breathing and things like that. You know, many of his neighbors before they had systems would spend an hour or two or three a day walking just to charge their phone because somewhat surprising. I'd heard this, but I saw it as well uh, when I was there that everybody has a cell phone. Uh, they may not have a single light in their home. A uh, cell phone might be the only electrical device they have, but they, without these solar, these small solar systems, they, they walk for hours to get them charged in some cases and pay a lot of money. And these people don't have it. So these solar home systems do a lot more than uh, just provide uh, lighting for homework for children. And What's really exciting, it's going on in Africa now, and the conversations, um, I think, are, are getting more accelerated. Many people have followed that the Rockefeller Foundation and IKEA banded together and put a billion dollars of their capital towards uh, electrification, particularly in Africa, but all over the world, trying to follow on $10 billion worth of uh, private capital that's looking to make investments. And a lot of this is focused on what they call productive use. And this is where it gets really exciting. It goes beyond these personal stories and you have a system that can stand independent of the grid because in so many cases, there is no grid or as you point out, it's, it's unreliable. And by the way, the further you get from Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, I believe, the larger city in Kenya, the less reliable what grids exist become. So in contrast, you can build these independent solar battery systems for small factories that might uh, take some of the crops and uh, grow and, and juice them and turn them into to food products. You might have small manufacturing that can be done in places that literally have no other industry other than smallholder farmers who are barely getting by season to season. So electrification, these, these remote off-grid systems can get larger and change the entire economy and start what people who work in this field call uh, climbing the energy ladder. It's just, it, It's such a profound 
story. And it echoes a little bit in some ways of what we saw in the United States in the 1930s with the Rural Electrification Act when 40 to 50% of the United States had no electricity and what a difference that made in the subsequent 20 years when nearly 100% of the United States became electrified. It's a transformative economically. And that's the other half of the story we looked at. I guess there's a third half, if you aren't counting math-wise, which is the, uh, uh, the, the policy side. And m- one of the most memorable stories, we were at dinner with several of the leaders, the political leaders of one of the countries we were visiting and talking to one of the people in the energy ministry. And we were talking about the value of these off-grid systems. And she said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're talking about prices that are, these off-grid systems are, are half or third of what they were a few years ago. I don't know, what am I missing? And we all took a step back and we said, well, that's the nature of technology. If it costs $1,000, in uh, 2015, it's going to cost uh, $200 in, in, in 2020. And it was just amazing watching the gears turn because they realized that this wasn't like building a coal plant or building a hydro plant, that they, their policy setting and their investments could benefit tremendously if they understood how the technology prices were changing and how they could lean into that to provide the assistance more aggressively and more affordably. And, and in fact, uh, that particular country dramatically changed their policy towards off-grid about nine months after that visit. So I think they, they heard it from us and probably a lot of other people that off-grid is, is a much more resilient, powerful, usable solution than I think they had thought based on prices the last time the government had seriously looked at them. So it's, that's, that was a third part of that trip that was so eye-opening how policy was trailing the technology, but could, could ultimately embrace it and change another millions, another millions and millions of lives. Now, there's a, a couple of things to tease apart in there. The, I mean, the first thing is you and I, most of our careers benefited from Moore's Law, um, you know, very strongly. You know, we, we made lots of bets about processing power being adequate and telecommunications power being adequate, you know, you know 20 years ago. And, you know, everybody who bet on like faster computers and more speed in the internet won. And everybody who bet against that lost, you know, so Moore's law is interesting because the distributed energy takes advantage of that. The incredible cheapness of embedded computerized control systems is one of the fallouts of that. But the other law that's interesting in this case is Wright's law. You, you know Wright's law, I assume? I, I don't know it by that name, but I think I know where you're going. So keep going. Well, Wright's law, his, his characterization said that for every doubling of manufacturing yes. capacity for something, the cost per unit drops by 28%. And that's probably the big story with solar. We had, uh, I've done the math on this a couple of times, and I always come out around 3 billion solar panels globally. That's 3 billion, three and nine zeros. That's a lot. <laughs> we, we've doubled so many times to get to 3 billion solar panel, panels manufactured. That's one of the major reasons they've plummeted in price. It's, you know, just micro innovations all the way through the entire supply chain, drop it down. And you and I talk about, uh, you talk about scaling by volume. I I tend to think in computer terms like horizontal versus vertical scaling. Vertical, (laughs) make things bigger. Horizontal, make more of them, right? That's the the language I use. My chemical engineering, process engineering buddy, Paul Martin, uses the scaling by, you know, uses it different terms, but it all amounts to the same thing. Scaling horizontally plugs directly into Wright's law. 
I'd always heard it uh, as the uh, experience curve uh, made famous by Bruce Henderson, who is uh, one of the founders of Boston Consulting Group. But as you said, the there are many names for this simple idea. And this is a big part of my book. And there's a fun, some, some fun history. You know, I did the math as well. And, and I think it's, if you, if you look at the price declines in solar and the ones that are following with batteries and you compare it to other energy generation, it's really stunning. You know, the price of a solar uh, watt has dropped 400 times since 1977, when the first solar cells were being put on satellites. 400 times from about $80 a watt down to 20 cents a watt. And, and that's a remarkable change. It's not, nothing near Moore's law, but this requires you to make physical things at scale. So it's a little, it doesn't benefit quite as much at the same rate as Moore's law. But one of the fun exercises I did was to compare the rate of price decline of solar uh, and batteries to other energy generation sources. So for example, there are about 400, I think 440 nuclear plants in the world today. And the, the U.S. has built almost none. There's one still being completed, but that'll be the first one in 20 or some, some years. And so the opportunities to learn is, and that's why I like the term, the experience curve, you know, that every time you build a new nuclear plant, you can learn how to build the next one better. So nuclear, unsurprisingly, has had the lowest cost declines. And in fact, in some ways, it's gone up in price for a variety of reasons. So then you go to coal plants and natural gas plants, and, and, and you know, there's tens of thousands of natural gas plants and that's one of the reasons they're getting cheaper because you can make them in a factory and put them on a train and move some, some gas plants uh, can be distributed that way. So you get some economy, what I call economies of volume building. Then you get to wind turbines. And by my math, there's probably half a million wind turbines in the world today. And so you, you, you get a lot more innovation, a lot more experience with new, each new wind uh, turbine that was built and they get better. The generations improve at a more rapid rate and, and, Again, not surprisingly, the price of wind energy has plummeted at a pretty predictable and steady rate over the last 20 years. Well, the, the core component of solar is a cell. And by my math, there's, we've built about 120 billion cells over the last 20 years, 120 billion cells. And every time you make another batch of cells, you can learn from it and improve it. So for a variety of reasons, including the learning curve, the price of solar is dropping at an unprecedented rate will will probably continue in some ways to continue to get cheaper. And that driving force is why it's so disruptive. And the same way that the internet, the low cost of communications from the internet disrupted so many industries, the same way that uh, uh, microprocessors disrupted mainframes, the same pattern is playing out with solar cells and batteries because you can make them at massive volumes and highly automated factories. And there's no other paradigm like that in energy history. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.